TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to the Bike Nerds Podcast. For you, the listeners of the Bike Nerds Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Wagon Shoots. Yes, ma'am. What you listening to? I have just finished listening to Ahsoka. Yes. The, the new anticipated Star Wars novel by E.K. Johnston, narrated by Ashley Eckstein, the voice of Ahsoka herself <laughs> from the TV show. Dang. Yeah. Fantastic. It's great. I listened to it like in two days. Um, it was a good listen. You know, I I was I think I was expecting the journey in the book to go further than it did, but I still feel satisfied with what it what it offered. Satisfaction is important. Yep. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash OAM. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash OAM for your free audio book. Kyle, we're in the, we're in the studio together. We are in the studio. We have uh, next door to us the band Pez f- from Memphis practicing. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a little bit of like, like super legit background bass. I think probably it makes us, in like, this really recording. Legit. <laughs> like there's like a live act performing <laughs> yeah. in the building next to us. I think it adds to our like cool factor. It's a it's a good ambiance. I yeah. think. Um. So you know Pez. Includes some great bike advocates. Yes. Anthony Syracuse, who's been on the show, plays bass and Pez right now. Um, he's played a lot of different parts. I actually played bass and Pez. Didn't know that for a very short period yeah, of time. I paid, played by bass and Pez as well. Really, yeah. that's amazing. Little known. Fact. Um, but yeah, we're here together. I'm in Memphis for the Big River Crossing Grand Opening. It's happening, people. And I heard that you actually built the bridge. I did yourself. I did build it. This is like a mile long bridge over the Mississippi River. Um, it's opening up tomorrow. Um, so by the time this podcast is released, it will have been open for like two days. Yes. Uh, and I think it's going to be cool. So the Big River Crossing is the Harahan Bridge. Mm. That is a rail active, line, An active, active rail bridge. Active rail bridge that was built 100 years ago. Like 1916. In like a crazy way to cross the Mississippi for Union Pacific Rail Line. It was originally called the Harahan Bridge. By by the designer, right? By the designer who, in a conspiracy, there's a lot of rumors around it, was decapitated at the bridge during the building of the bridge. It was also the original- Which I find fascinating. Automobile crossing in Memphis of the Mississippi River. I care more about the decapitation. Well, but I think what's interesting is that, that these roadways were like- hung off the side yep. of the rail bridge and, and they were wooden planks. So you would drive your like Model T car over w- more than a mile over the Mississippi River, yeah. like hundreds of feet in the air on this like rickety wooden yeah. plank bridge. And, and now and eventually it caught on fire. The wooden planks yes, caught on fire did. and burned. That's as what, wood does. That's one of the reasons that they decommissioned it. But right? now it is a rail ped and bike wow. bridge that crosses the Mississippi and connects 
connects Memphis to West Memphis, Arkansas. What is in West Memphis, Arkansas to connect to? Your favorite thing. Ponchos. Ponchos cheese dip. There also is 60 miles of levee trails. Yeah. You can bike to like Marion, Arkansas, which is wow. 60 miles away. And they're actually really beautiful levee trails that are built, you know, yes. for flooding and to support not only, you know, stormwater and management and flood management, but also these great trails. And then they're also working on a park that'll be directly on the other side of the bridge that will also be able to respond to flood water. So it'll be a park that can be totally used during the dry season. And then if the water rises, we'll be able to react and respond um, to the Mississippi rising. That's so pretty there's cool. a lot of opportunity um, that the bridge kind of connects between the Mid-South. And I think, you know, Memphis is in this great position where we are connected so closely to Mississippi and Arkansas. That's an important piece of it's our also, history. It's also a way, you know, like, to reach a very secluded, yep. natural place directly connected to a very dense urban exactly. environment of downtown yeah. Memphis, the, right? And the levee trails are truly through... I mean, they're through open farm, pastoral land, and so it's really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm trying to think of like another city who from their downtown urban center, you can reach total seclusion in a a matter of moments. Let's just say it's Memphis. Maybe that's it. Listeners can tell us if we're wrong. (laughs) Until then, that's it. We are right. Who who are we listening to this episode? This is episode 34 – and we had uh, Carolyn Shapansky Reinertson uh, of the Minnesota Housing Partnership yes. on the podcast. And why that's interesting is that Carolyn used to be, you know, communications manager at both the Alliance for Biking and Walking and the League of American Bicyclists. She's made the transition to working in communications still, but for affordable housing provider and advocacy group in Minnesota. Yep. And I admittedly had the most amazing time listening to y'all. You guys are great. Like, I think actually, I say that in not a disparaging way, but your conversation was so fascinating to me that I just like listened and it was amazing. No, you asked great questions as well. No, I know. I'm not saying I didn't participate, but for me, it was like I walked away. Like, I still think about the conversation because I think it was just like powerful and talked about a lot of things that like, we will not solve this year or next year yeah. that are like big systematic institutional yeah. issues around like racism and development and et cetera, et cetera. So, well, I, you know, I think Carolyn did a nice job of painting the picture of how bike advocacy and affordable housing advocacy go hand in hand yeah. and the relationship between the two, uh, understanding how the skills for her, from her job working in bike advocacy for so many years have translated to this new role as an advocate, sort of thinking about – still thinking about transportation, but also thinking about where people live Absolutely. Uh, in, in the span of that. I do feel like it was almost like our first kind of like post – bike nerds whoa we moved into like Like, a a we've been talking (laughs) about kind of how we want to like escape from bike culture and bike nerds and i do feel like she's someone that has transitioned from a bike advocate role into this new role that um so for me it was really kind of gratifying to see these conversations we've been having and then being able to talk to someone who has made that transition and is and is actively as a professional looking at things in this holistic way. But yeah. we could talk about it forever. So let's Well, you know, one of the reasons that we had Carolyn on was because she's helping to organize the yes. Untokening Conference, which is happening in Atlanta 
on November the 13th. Uh, it's, you know, it's subtitled A Convening for Just Streets and Communities. Some of our other guests, Naomi Dorner, yep. uh, is also helping to sort of organize this conference. And we, we wanted to use this as an opportunity Absolutely. for Carolyn to sort of, you know, give a bit of, a bit of a shout out to the untokening, but also for us here, you know, in the intro to also talk about that. Um, you know, people, uh, it's going to be, it's a, it's a one day conference in, in, you know, a Sunday after a Sunday in, in November Atlanta. in Atlanta. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's following the, the conclusion of, of another workshop, um, facing race conference in Atlanta. So if you're going to go to that, you can also stay an extra day and go to the untokening, but you know, uh, you and I are not going to be able to make it, um, but we both sort of provided some financial assistance yes. to the untokening. We wanted to use the platform of you know the podcast here to encourage others Absolutely. to Absolutely. So there's an IOB campaign, which Kyle and I both utilize to support the conference. And so if you Google IOB and untokening, I believe you'll also be able to make a donation to help support scholarships and ensure that everyone that has a voice will be able to attend untokening. And if you want to attend, you can still register. Yes. Registration is still open. It's it's super reasonable. I want to say it's like 75 bucks to attend the the one day workshop. Uh, if you're if you don't have the financial means to do it, they've got a lot of, like you mentioned, a lot of opportunities for scholarships and so you can contact them and request one of those. But it's going to be a really powerful, I think, workshop. Um you can get onto the website, theuntokening.org, uh, to read about some of the workshops and the agenda for the conference. Uh, I'm super happy that it's happening in the South. Agreed. I think uh, I think that's uh, in Atlanta is, is a great place to sort of think about having Absolutely. that kind of conversation. And the bass player you can hear in the background will be attending from <laughs> Memphis. <laughs> yeah. So go to the Untokening, listen to the episode, yeah. uh, stay tuned. I think it's going to be a good one. Let's do it. Let's hit it. Thanks for joining us. Monday feels like either the best or the worst way to start with the week with a podcast. Oh, no, definitely best. Thank you. <laughs> That's what I was. I was just setting you up to say that, really. <laughs> so you're based out of Minneapolis and St. Paul? Yes, yes. What do you do there? I actually now work in affordable housing for an organization called the Minnesota Housing Partnership. And what do they do? Um, we are kind of a grass tops organization. We work with a lot of, um, policymakers at the state level, at the local municipal level. We work with, um, nonprofit developers who actually do the, um, development of affordable housing projects. So, um, yeah, it's wonky. It's, it's a new nerdiness to me for sure. Um, were you, what were you doing before then? So before then, I was with the, um, well, I was with the Alliance for Biking and Walking, and then I was with the League of American Bicyclists, and then I was doing kind of consulting in a bunch of different kind of bikey realms, including with the Vision Zero Network. Um, so yeah, so I was, I was a professional bike advocate for, I don't know, five, six years before this. So how did you transition from biking to housing? Well, honestly, it was the um, work at the league where um, me and some colleagues started um, an initiative called the Equity Initiative and started thinking about all of the different intersections and interfaces that biking has with other social justice issues. So thinking about, you know, what role does bicycling play in things like displacement and gentrification? Um, And so from there, kind of became interested in some of these other 
issues that play into community development and kind of are are integrated with you know the the general the general um, vision that by advocates have for you know creating more livable cities and what are some of the other issues that that play into that so um, yeah so I got really interested in housing and we had just moved here earlier this year to the Twin Cities and yeah, an opportunity arose so kind of I changed teams I guess you could say. I like that. I think Kyle and I have a lot of guests that entered into biking through kind of housing or other sort of industries. And I love that you've popped out of biking kind of Mm -hmm. on the other end in a different advocate role. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How how do you like, so I would summer in Minneapolis if I could. I love Minneapolis. Oh my God. Me too. (laughs) One of my favorite places, but I don't know if I could commit to a winter there. Yeah, you know, we moved here in January and everyone thought we were crazy. Um, it like band aid, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not, I mean, and honestly, then all the Minnesotans were um, saying that, well, this year it wasn't a real winter. It was, it was pretty mild. So we're started going, we're going into the, the changing of the season. And um, yeah, I've got, I'm definitely looking forward to, there's an organization here called Grease Rag, which is a women trans femme um, identified kind of bike organization and they have a winter skill share. And I am there. I have that circled on my calendar for um, definitely getting, getting some, some teachings from the, the local Minnesotans on how, how to navigate the very, 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 very cold uh, winters here. I, w- I lived in uh, Kansas City for a while, and I was a you know a bike commuter there. And I was like, well, I mean, there's snow, it's cold, whatever. Right. <laughs> uh, but this is very much a different different reality. Uh, we were having dinner with some some friends who had moved from California here, and they said that the first winter they were here, like they were walking literally from a parking lot into. Uh, I don't know, like a grocery store or something. And they literally felt like the the liquid in their eyes start to freeze. And I was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> so yeah. So I got to get, I got to get some ski goggles. I know that's on the agenda to protect my eyes. I got to get some of those like lobster claw uh, gloves. So yeah, I'm, I'm starting to make the, the list of the gear that I need to, to make it through the winter. Cause I am, I'm like fully committed to being a year round cyclist here. So, so we'll see how that goes. It sounds like one of those survival shows that are on TV. Yeah. (laughs) I know Kyle and I were talking to someone on Sunday for the podcast from Fort Collins and he was really into winter cycling. And I feel like there's an opportunity to have like a whole winter cycling like panel on the podcast. Oh God. Yeah. They have a winter cycling. Like I didn't even think about goggles. Like you've got liquid in your eyes. You got to protect that. (laughs) Yeah. Seriously. So yeah, they, and actually when, when I first got here, so I got here in January and then like a couple months later, um, the winter cycling Congress was actually here in Minneapolis and there are some serious, like people who relish the whole winter thing. Like they have their, you know, their special bikes and their studded tires and it's like very much an identity. And I don't know if I'm like quite there yet. Like, I don't think I'm looking forward to the winter cycling, um, but it is, it's definitely kind of a bike culture in and of itself. And they actually, they had a ride at the winter cycling Congress and it started to snow like halfway through the day. And everyone was super pumped about the fact that like, yes, we're going to go ride in the snow. I was like, Oh, I don't, I don't know. I was kind of <laughs> forward to not having the snow part, but you know, yeah. 
I feel like there's probably like this guy, right? And he's like, I only ride when it snows out. Oh God! Yeah. You know, you know, like, like you know, like the person like that only rides like when the sun is shining. But there's like the opposite. There's the guy that only can uh, go for a cruise when there's like a three foot snowdrift <laughs> next to the trail. But that guy feels a little less obnoxious than the just spiking when it's like seventy degrees and sunny out. <laughs> it's because he has so many clothes on you can't hear him like being obnoxious. <laughs> Mumble. <laughs> <laughs> Scarf yeah. is tightly wound around his face. Yeah, there's that whole like us bicyclists we think we're superior and that dude is just like the epitome of i'm the superior bicyclist like he just feels <laughs> superior to everyone i'm sure um, oh my god yeah because like who would choose to bike in the winter it's yeah. like actually like maybe the most privileged position you can yeah. be in is being yeah. like i'm going to only bike when it snows yeah i'm like choosing to go outside when i could possibly suffer hypothermia <laughs> because yeah that's because that's how i roll <laughs> I think there's a TV show in your future. <laughs> for sure. Yes. Uh, Carolyn, Carolyn, I'm curious yeah. to know, sort of making the transition from bike advocacy to affordable housing advocacy, are there things that you take from bike advocacy that helps inform your current work? Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, here in the Twin Cities – I was recently at, I'm, I'm sure and you guys should have Melody Hoffman on the podcast at some point. So she recently published a book called Bike Lanes or White Lanes. Yes. Um, and so there was uh, a, a reading for, you know, the book release and there, everyone, I actually felt like kind of on the spot, like, oh, I don't know enough about housing yet to be this person. But there's like very distinct interest in the bike world, I feel um, in connecting with housing because there's there's a very keen understanding that you know mobility is predicated on your proximity to things so if you mm-hmm. um, if the only place you can afford to live is way out in the suburbs and your job is 20 miles away in the central city that's going to make it exponentially harder to be a bicycle commuter and it's you know going to make it really hard to even make that a conceivable choice so there's, there's a lot of dialogue, you know, at that particular convening, multiple people were like, we need to be in the room with housing folks, because as we're making decisions about how we, you know, build out these visions for housing, which there's a lot of, you know, just like there's a lot of um, different opinions in the bike world, you know, there's different camps in affordable housing where, you know, there's the choice side where we want to, we want to make uh, it possible for people in places of, you know, concentrated poverty. We want to make it possible for them to move out to the areas that are, you know, quote unquote opportunity areas. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other camp that says, wait a second, why don't we just invest in the disinvested places so that people can stay where they are? Um, so that type of conversation, you know, having the the transportation element already in my brain, um, I feel like I, I kind of bring and then being a bicycle commuter, you know what I mean? Like I wouldn't have the opportunity. And when we were moving here, like I have to be within, you know, 10 miles of the things that I access on a daily basis. Cause I don't drive. So I think having that lens to, uh, how I think about housing is, it definitely brings a different kind of, I think I would argue a more nuanced perspective, um, to it. than I think a lot of people who just have kind of adopted the notion that, you know, car culture is just the way that it is. And you know, there's a lot of interfaces with public transit as well. And obviously I'm a, you know, a bus and a train user, I'm pretty multimodal, you know, on any given week, I'll take a bus or a train, you know, with my bike a couple of times. So 
Yeah, I think that that's really informed the way that I kind of approach the fact that affordable housing isn't just an issue isolated unto itself. And I think that a lot of the conversation in bicycling now is is similar in that, you know, people are recognizing that bicycling isn't an issue unto itself either, that it comes linked to these other issues of, you know, like Melody brings out in her book, issues of displacement and gentrification and, and the way people perceive bicycling is, you know, different in different communities and, and what Bicycling is a harbinger of, in some places, is this notion of displacement, and that's that's real. So, so yeah, there's there's a lot of a lot of intersections there that yeah that I think I bring to to my current work for sure. On that same line of thought, is there something that you've learned since the transition that you that you wish you had known or wish you had a better understanding of when you were doing bike advocacy? Oh my God. Yeah. So the first thing was, um, I remember it was like in the first or second week of my job, I was having coffee with Anthony Taylor, who, um, I'm sure most people on this podcast know he's one of the founders of the national brotherhood of cycling at the national level. Um, and I was like, God, I didn't realize like when I was a bike advocate, I was like, why don't housing advocates want to like talk to bike advocates? Like, obviously there's such a connection here. And then I'm in this new position where I'm working affordable housing. I'm like, I don't even know how I would begin to interface with bicycling in my current day-to-day job. Hmm. Like there are just so many, just, I think that most of us who work in nonprofits, we feel over overloaded already. And, you know, just the keeping up with the day-to-day tasks feels, you know, barely manageable in the first place. So then to be thinking about, you know, how do I extend this paradigm of what I'm working on right now that I have to get done and bring in kind of these other perspectives and start to work in partnership in, you know, like white, you know, the white dominant nature of bike advocacy is not, it's the same in a lot of different spaces and housing is definitely one of them. So there's already this kind of coming into affordable housing, you're thinking about how can I broaden the partners, like the the obvious partners, like the communities of color that that really need um, to be in this conversation in an authentic way. So then to be thinking even beyond that uh, to kind of the maybe, you know, the non-endemic people who would be great to have in the conversation, but, you know, there's certain priorities along the way to, to even getting to that point, you know? So I think that the reality that, you know, there's everyone in their own little silo, unfortunately, has a lot of things in their silo that they're dealing with already. And so I think that in, in my naive head as a bicycle advocate, it seemed really easy for other folks to be like, yeah, bicycling, I totally like that seems like an issue that should be important to me. Um, and that's just not that's not the case. You know, I think it takes a lot more work, I think, than I originally thought. Um, and yeah. And I think that there's, you know, just like in the bike world, we're trying to build a meaningful relationship with the communities that have been completely disenfranchised from the policymaking and the decision-making over, you know, X number of decades. There's that same work that's needs to happen in affordable housing too. So yeah, it's, it's harder than I thought, which I mean, that's most things, <laughs> unfortunately, but yeah. No, I, th- I think that's a theme, you know, that's come up in some of our recent, you know, chats with people on the podcast is the notion that we should be working together, but the the actual day-to-day logistics of that are actually way tougher than anybody really sort of thinks about. We, we were talking just last week, you know, Sarah mentioned with somebody from Fort Collins, and mm-hmm. they we were talking about 
you know, the, the interaction between public transit and the park system mm-hmm. and the transportation department who's working on bikes, who are all, you know, very intentionally actually working on the same goals and objectives, but, you know, for one reason or another, aren't actually communicating and, and working, you know, in tandem together. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, I was, I would, it just struck me as you were sort of talking about, uh, you know, sort of that circumstance. We, we interviewed Aaron Barnes from IOB, um, I guess this past, mm-hmm. this past summer. And Aaron had mentioned to us that when IOB was first started doing its grant making process, it actually didn't allow for like bicycle facilities or for transportation type facilities because they weren't, they weren't place based, right? They were, they were how people connected between places. And as you were sort of talking about housing, it got me thinking about, I wonder if, if that's one of the separations is that affordable housing practices are typically place based where transportation Mm -hmm. isn't quite so much. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's, that's true. Um, and I think that there's just, um, it's difficult. I think in most, in most kind of areas of social justice, if you would call, you know, bicycling kind of within that field too, there's kind of a struggle to be thinking more holistically and from more of a systems based approach, which I think you see in, in bicycling with, you know, moving more from, you know, we're going to put a bike lane in this area to how do we connect the city and, you know, create a minimum grid and, you know, really thinking at the macro scale. And I think that a lot of folks, you know, affordable housing is like that too, where it's, you know, that, that whole, um, you know, tension between, you know, equity in place or giving people the choice to move to other places is thinking about that in a holistic way, as opposed to just on a project by project type of, um, level. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's, that's definitely, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why, you know, people are talking about that more. There's a really great project here um, in the Twin Cities that I think has kind of, I'm not sure if this is the official title, but it's called the Big Picture Project. And, you know, when they were putting in the Green Line, which is a, um, a light rail that goes between, you know, downtown St. Paul to downtown Minneapolis, and they were doing this, you know, transit-oriented development, they baked a certain number of affordable housing units kind of into the, the you know, parameters of the project. And so that was kind of, I think, the a, a way to start thinking about, you know, it's not just, you know, place by place, it's this whole corridor. And how do we, how do we kind of mitigate some of the, not even mitigate, but how do we balance the positive aspects of, you know, increased investment with making sure that the people who are here right now are still here to, you know, take advantage of those investments. So I think that that kind of thinking, though, you know, people around the country, apparently, I'm not learned enough in this area yet to, to know for sure. But you know, that's kind of what some people point to as a model. And I think that that's where a lot of the thinking, hopefully, is going to start to think about it. Um, you know, and here in the Twin Cities, it's interesting, because it's not even just the nature of, you know, two major metropolitan cities pretty much abutting right into each other. And then we kind of look at our region as the seven county region. So it's an interesting place to be thinking about, um, you know, it's not even just how do we do this on the city scale, but how do we, how do we make, you know, adequate affordable housing on the seven county regional scale. So it's kind of like, you know, working with an MPO, is kind of analogous to the way we're thinking about housing here. We're going into a comp planning process, comprehensive planning process, 
And it's not just, well, where do we put the housing in Minneapolis? It's where do we put the housing in this like gigantic region so that it all makes sense and kind of fits together. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's definitely happening more and more. But then there's, you know, the, the kind of priorities of, of neighborhoods that have, you know, vacant lots or, you know, developers who have the opportunity to do a project in a certain place and, and then, you know, by definition, you know, priorities then kind of go down to that micro level of let's get this project accomplished. But I think that there's, there's I think more of a balance is, is starting to happen. Do you have an opinion on where the systemic failure for affordable housing sort of exists? And by that, I mean, you know, I, I, there's there can and is a lot of advocacy around sort of, you know, individual projects, affordable housing, mm-hmm. or individual neighborhoods, you know, it's mm-hmm. sort of identified at a much smaller scale. But but what leads us to that point where we're, we're fighting for, you know, by a building by building affordable housing initiatives? What is, is there, is there a bigger point of advocacy that should be, you know, that the people should be thinking about sort of that, that bigger scale that you're talking about? Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's, especially for communicators such as myself, that's kind of the perennial problem, especially in affordable housing. I think even more than bicycling is trying to get across to people that affordable housing is, is an issue that we all have to care about whether or not, you know, we are able to afford our rent or our mortgage because having affordable housing is um, kind of the the foundation of ha- being successful. I mean, it's it's whether you have enough money to you know have you know appropriate childcare for your kids to mm-hmm. you know get healthy food to pay for your medications. I mean, it has this gigantic ripple effect on so many of the outcomes of, you know, your family's life. And I think that's been something that we're focusing on more and more is how do we message that to a wider population so that they can associate affordable housing as, as an issue that impacts them. And I think that in bicycling, I think that there's, there's an easier tie because everyone uses the streets and everyone can see that, yeah, transportation and having the ability to get from one place to another, that's something that I encounter on a day-to-day basis. But people, it's, it's a harder leap for people to get to, well, if there's not enough affordable housing in my community, that means that, you know, people don't have the ability, you know, educational outcomes for kids in my community are lower because they don't have stable housing. So I think that that's kind of the messaging gap that we've mm-hmm. been grappling with for, for many, many years. And I'm like very new to that um, whole situation. And the other thing I think is kind of, and it's, it's also kind of analogous to biking and transportation. And I heard someone make this point on the, why isn't anyone talking about this podcast? And it's, this notion that, you know, infrastructure is kind of this public good. And so, of course, the federal government has a stake and the you know local municipal state government has a stake in, in making sure that we have roads that are functional. Um, and previously, you know, several decades ago, there was kind of a similar thinking around housing. And obviously, we didn't do it very well. You know, we bought the you know, built these gigantic public housing complexes that ended up, you know, not working out because we didn't have the money to keep investing in them. But there's a very different notion of, you know, keeping, having streets is a public good, whereas the notion that having housing 
is a public good has kind of gone away as the federal funding has you know diminished dramatically. So that's another kind of area that I think is a little bit of a failure that a lot of folks would point to is that there's just been like transportation, there's been a just exponential decrease in the the amount of resources that go to it. And so now we're kind of in this strange place in affordable housing where it's like, well, are the solutions getting private foundations to invest in affordable housing? Is it getting, you know, socially responsible, you know, banks and investors to take a role? Or is that, you know, giving the government a pass and saying, well, yeah, okay, fine. Well, you're not going to invest in this, you know, critical staple of, you know, a functional society. We're going to go to the private market to try to fill that gap. So I think that then that's still something that's, I think, in conversation right now, you know, we're at my organization is facilitating this fair housing um, process here in the Twin Cities. And a lot of people, especially kind of the more equity oriented community based organizations are like, we need more resources, like we can't just figure out where we're going to put the resources, we need to make the pot bigger. Um, in order for this to work. And I know that's, you know, that's a challenge for so many issues is yes, we all need more resources, but that's really kind of the crux of, of the biggest challenge in affordable housing. I was actually reading a story today where someone said, um, you know, we can't keep having million dollar conversations about a billion dollar problem. (laughs) And here in the twin cities, that's, that's the thing. Like we need a billion dollars to even start to, you know, get to a point where we've got adequate affordable housing for folks and we need that money in a sustained kind of way. So the the level of, you know, the scale that we're talking about often isn't isn't on par with with the need. So again, it goes back to kind of convincing making sure that it's kind of in the public consciousness that this is this is a big problem and, you know, we got to we got to take some serious steps to to deal with it. We can't just kind of tinker around the edges. I feel like there's a lot of rabbit holes we could go down. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I, like, I have like 18 questions. I've, I've, just made, I've just made some notes, and I think we've saw, if we answer all of these, we will solve the world's problems tonight. So, <laughs> that, no, that's, I, I think there's a couple of really interesting things that you, that you mentioned there. You know, number one, I've heard, this, I've heard this remark before, right, in terms of what does it take – from the private sector or private foundations or philanthropic organizations, you know, is there contributions? Are, are those contributions and they're, they're giving, are they letting, you know, the government off the hook for services that should be providing? I've heard this, I've heard this in regards, you know, particularly in Memphis where I was working with Sarah, you know, around bicycle facilities and bicycle planning of the city, the city's, you know, the, the six years that I was working there, the bicycle program's budget was zero dollars uh, all six <laughs> years in a row. And, and we got a lot done with, you know, with the, with the zero dollar budget. But we even got we got a lot more done because of, you know, the donations and the work of, you know, people outside of city government. Um, mm-hmm. I think IOBI, we talked with when we talked with Aaron Barnes, you know, we talked about w- what the role of IOBI is within cities and whether or not. IOB is, is just a stopgap where, you know, the city should be doing this stuff. We shouldn't have to, you know, have private citizens contributing small amounts of money to sort of, you know, fund these kinds of projects. I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting question to ask. And I think there's like, a, there's probably a principled answer. And then there's like a, there's like a realistic answer, right? And, and then the realistic yeah. answer is sort of what you mentioned, right? Is that there's a billion dollar problem. And I think mm-hmm. if we went, if we went sort of issue by issue in cities, 
You know, we would if we went affordable housing, it's a billion dollar problem. If we went sidewalks, it's a billion dollar mm-hmm. problem. If we went affordable public transportation, we're probably like a two or three billion dollar problem. Uh, I think you know, across the board, it's like wow, you know, the government isn't actually doing what it needs to across all of these areas. They're all just kind of band aids, uh, mm-hmm. you know, getting us to you know the next political cycle or, or the band aid to the next you know sort of federal grant funding that sort of comes in it's going to save the day um you know how do you how do you sort of you know i know how i sort of get by with it but i wonder you know how do you sort of you know continue to advocate uh in the face of such sort of a tidal wave of challenges yeah yeah well it's also um it's also different difficult from you know again being someone who's in communications and messaging um, it's hard to message that, you know, because you immediately get to a point where it's like, well, we don't have a billion dollars. Yeah. So let's not even start this conversation. You know what I mean? So how do you even, you know, get to a point where you can talk about it in an intelligent kind of action oriented way. And, you know, some of the things I think are pointing to the areas where there's room to, you know, change other policies. You know, so for one, one thing that we've been thinking about a lot, and it's still a little bit, you know, controversial um, at the state level because, you know, real estate people don't like it very much, but, you know, the mortgage interest, you know, tax deduction. So there's, you know, there are certain tax deductions that people who make, you know, a good amount of money that have, you know, half a million dollar homes are taking a deduction there where if we just even lowered the cap on that. So it's, you know, you, have to, you know, pay in at a lower level, mm-hmm. we would free up a ton of money. Yeah. Um, so there's always, there's always kind of trade-offs, but no one wants to, you know, obviously no one wants to give up their tax break and, and, you know, people will say, well, you know, that's, that's going to, you know, have a negative impact on, you know, the middle class. And so you, you have to get into these conversations. And I think that's, you know, in a lot of equity conversations, it's like there, there do have to be trade-offs and, you know, there, there is going to be, you know, some, some pain points for people along the way. And we just have to make a decision about, you know, where are the priorities and who can afford to take a little bit of a hit and still, you know, be financially solvent as opposed to, you know, people who are already operating, you know, at the poverty level, let's try to kind of bring folks up a little bit. And if, you know, other people are going to take a little bit of a, you know, a decrease in their tax deductions, you know, we got to get, we got to get real with that reality. And the other thing is thinking about, you know, one of the things that, that I like to, well, one of my um, colleagues brought up the other day where it's like, you know what, we just spent, you know, X, Y, Z, millions of dollars on a new stadium like so kind of comparing some of these things to the investments that we're making as a society right now in terms of like we're investing in you know our entertainment districts and that's great i'm not saying that you know i they're building a soccer stadium where my wife and i just bought a house and we're pretty pumped about going to some soccer games i'm not gonna lie but you know there there are investments that you know are our city, state, federal governments are making that maybe need to be interrogated a little bit more. Um, and that's not an easy conversation for anyone to have. And that's the trade-off. You know, we're going into the state legislative session right now, and it's like, well, what can we afford to do? Because we're an under-resourced movement as it is. Like, do we have the ability to stand up to the Realtors Association? 
probably not. They're going to throw a lot of money at a campaign to shoot down uh, any sort of effort we have on on the money to tax induction. Um, so yeah, there, there's all these trade-offs that we make, and a lot of them are kind of invisible. And I think part of it is that a lot of times we, as kind of the advocates, don't necessarily have the resources to go up against those those larger and, and better resourced types of um, kind of industry organizations. But when you get to a point, we're going to have to have those conversations. So yeah, it's not not easy. Sorry, I got a little wonky with my my tax deductions there. That that no, wasn't that's where good. I was that's good. This is called the bike nerds. We encourage <laughs> walking. Yeah. But from the kind of getting back to your points about being a communicator and that kind of messaging, I mean, it really is just kind of really interesting to think how you can change the conversation that you can, you don't need to necessarily invest in every entertainment district or every sort of kind of new development in a city that there are ways to look at things in a different way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what that message is. It would be really great if I did. Yeah, um, no, me too. <laughs> I wish I had that solution. Yeah. Can I offer maybe a hypothesis here? Yes. Um, and this this might be a little selfish because I was schooled as a planner, but I, I wonder mm-hmm. to what degree all of that those kinds of questions are being asked as a due to a failure of a a comprehensive planning process to Mm. to adequately, number one, engage people in the community in an authentic way. Number two, Mm. to reflect the community's needs and desires long-term into the future. And number three, to actually enforce, you know, the priorities that come out of a a really great and robust comprehensive planning process. I think think back a lot to my time in Memphis and I, I try to sort of, you know, think about the good times and not have nightmares about the bad times. Uh, but the, the challenges that I really faced, I felt like were ones in which things, there were, there were things in which the city in general wasn't doing a great job of doing. And, and by that, I mean, I would go to a public meeting, uh, was, uh, was running, you know, what I think was, was really great in terms of like notifying people and getting people out to meetings and being able, having a process that people thought was transparent and they could work through with me on issues. But, you know, nine times out of 10, we were not spending, you know, the hour and a half talking about bicycle lanes or sidewalks or trails to parks or anything like that. We were talking about the city's lack of, you know, diligence in picking up trash and the lack of affordable housing and the lack of small black owned businesses in black neighborhoods. And mm-hmm. you know, to a, to a, to a certain extent, right. I can, I can help facilitate some of those conversations, right. If trash isn't getting picked up, I can, I can track down, you know, the department that's in charge of trash pickups and try to find out what's going on, report, report back to citizens. But for, but for some of these bigger issue items, these were things where the city was just totally, vacant in its in its response and how it handled these mm-hmm. things right and it, it left me as an employee hanging out on a wire a little bit you know taking sort of having to shoulder this burden where the city had also sort of just like shrugged off the burden and said we're we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're just not dealing with that and I, I wonder sort of you know nationwide you know i i, I think about 
you know, sort of planning in general a lot. Again, selfishly, because I sort of trained at it. But I wonder to what degree, you know, like a really great comprehensive plan could mitigate some of the struggles that we face, right? So what if in the Twin okay. Cities, your, 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 new comp, your new comp planning process, you know, mandated that, you know, 30% of all new housing developments remain affordable at a fixed rate uh, for the next, you know, 50 or 60 years. And then, you know, your legislators had the wherewithal to actually, you know, enforce that, you know, during, during those six years. How, how would that change the conversation? Yeah. Well, that would be huge. And, and just to kind of touch on some of what you were just saying. So this, we're going into a comp planning process here in the Twin Cities um, in the next you know, year or so. So this is very much on the on top of mind for a lot of people. And it's kind of happening at the same time where HUD, the um, housing, federal U.S. housing and urban development, um, has this – there was a lawsuit. There's a compliance agreement. And so the um, basically the entity that – that manages kind of CDBG funds and home funds, you know, these federal funds that come into um, our region, they have to go through this community engagement process because when they did it the first time, it was found by HUD to be um, inadequate. So we're sitting at this table right now with a lot of community-based organizations. And actually one of the cool things is that, you know, there's, there's funding for a consultant to come in and, you know, do all the data crunching and, you know, put together a report and, you know, we're going to spend, I don't know, tens of thousands of dollars on that. So the entity for the the region has said, you know what, we're going to put an equal amount of money into micro grants for community-based organizations to go out into their communities and actually ask members of the community, what are the barriers you see um, to, you know, getting and maintaining affordable housing. And one of the most interesting things is that people have been very upfront, the organizations who are, you know, getting the funding potentially to go out and have these conversations are saying, you know, exactly like you said, like we are in the middle of um, a very tenuous situation where we're going to our constituents and saying, Hey, tell me what your barriers are. When we've had that conversation with people umpteen times, like we know what the barriers are. We have talked to people about it. The problem isn't necessarily eliciting the opinions of the community. The problem is that whenever the community tells us and you what they want, you never do it. And there's no accountability around the fact that you never actually carry those things out. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that's been really um, kind of a a really good positive tension at this table between, you know, government folks who are are thinking about the comp planning process and making sure that they can keep, you know, these federal dollars coming in for housing um, and the community folks saying, we've done these surveys. Y'all know what the problems are. What we need is some, ability to hold you all accountable to the community when they tell you what what they want mm-hmm. um, so that's been a really interesting conversation and, and it's been really interesting to see like actually we're going to resource the community engagement at the same level that we're going to resource the the consultant who usually it's just the consultant comes in and does their deal and you know wraps a nice little bow around it and maybe has a couple of forums and integrates that into the findings. But mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's going to be one of the interesting things here is, um, you know, getting some sort of level of accountability, even if it's not like, okay, we heard what you said, and now we're going to do it. Because in a lot of cases, that's, that's not feasible, given resources, and, you know, given the reality of zoning and, you know, 45 million other things, but at least having some sort of check and balance where you're accountable to go back to the community and say, hey, we heard you say this, 
And this is what resulted from it. These are the mm-hmm. policies that we're going to attempt because that kind of feedback loop hasn't necessarily been present in the past. Um, so I think that's a that's kind of one of the things that is missing, I think, in the community engagement part. Like we're not good at community engagement right now. Like there are so many flaws in the way that we do it. But even when it's done well and we're getting the impact or getting the input that we want, um, there's that lack of trust continues to persist because we're not reporting back and being accountable to the people who gave us that input in the first place. So I think that'll be a really interesting thing to follow here in the Twin Cities. And and there's been a lot of, you know, pretty robust conversations around, let's make sure that when we're getting community input for, you know, you know, XYZ project, we're actually bringing that into the the bigger conversation too. So we're not having these isolated conversations, but we're really thinking intentionally about how do we make sure that all of that feedback gets kind of wrapped into this larger comprehensive planning conversation so that, you know, that process is fully informed by all of the different, um, you know, conversations that are happening. So, and, and one person, you know, said, you know, North Minneapolis is kind of the predominantly African-American area of the region. And one of the advocates was like, you know, North Minneapolis has been surveyed to death. Like we, <laughs> we know what people in North Minneapolis think. We're just not doing it. So I think that'll be the really interesting next step is figuring out how to, you know, be accountable to that feedback that's that's given in a way that's realistic, but also, you know, feels collaborative because right now it definitely doesn't. And people just feel like, oh, another process where I'm going to tell people, you know, my problems and nothing's going to change for me. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think you're right. And I think that is the hardest part of community engagement. It's, I mean, you can figure out and you can put the manpower and the money into getting people to attend meetings and workshops and, and you can, you can, you can do all of the work in terms of, you know, how you organize and structure a community engagement process so that people will actually be able to attend and participate in those kinds of things. But the actual toughest part, right, is taking all of that feedback trying to create consensus around it and then trying and then trying to implement it in a way, you know, that's consistent with all of the sort of external things that, that, that cities and governments and developers have to deal with, right. You know, like, you know, national standards and state standards and city standards and all that. Cause I, I, I yeah, I totally agree. And it's not, uh, it's not, that's, that's a piece I think that gets overlooked, right. I mean, so much emphasis in the community engagement process for what for whatever process it's all about how many people did you notify of this process it's not mm-hmm. it's not how many people showed up it's not how many people participated and it's certainly not you know in what ways was was their feedback incorporated into the final plans or the final designs or the final policies none of that is actually a key metric that that's required you know across any kind of um, any kind of state or federal regulations that happen there. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's tricky, right? I mean, because you, on one hand, like I, I saw this at the city of Memphis, right? There's, there are professionals that do a really great job at what they do. Right. And, and they don't go to a public meeting with something that they've sort of, you know, drew on the back of a napkin. They, they've, yeah. inv- they've invested a lot of time and energy and thinking about the best possible solutions. You know, what turns out though, what they haven't done is, asked anybody else what they what they what they actually thought. And so 
so when it comes time to having a public meeting and people don't like what's being presented, there's a there's a personal stake here, right? That people feel like they've done a really great job and provided some really great solutions. Um, and it, it's hard. It's 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 hard on it's it's a, it's a personal it's a personal level, and I think that's it, right. Mm-hmm. That, that's what the community engagement process is missing is this personal interaction mm-hmm. and the trust that comes about through it through interaction. I've mm-hmm. I've I've been involved in one of those processes on a neighborhood level in South Memphis, and listeners of the podcast will have heard me sort of talk about that experience. But you know, we did a we did a two year long community engagement process where the community members, you know, by design chose and selected priorities that were going to be included in, into a neighborhood plan. And if you think about like scaling that up, right beyond mm-hmm. a, beyond sort of a, a five square mile neighborhood to you know, a city the size of either the Twin Cities or the city of Memphis, the, the, the thoughts of sort of committing that many resources to a two-year endeavor so you could come out with, you know, a 30-page plan of priorities is is sort of mind-boggling, right, to yeah. to elected officials and to funders mm-hmm. and to everybody else along the way. Um, so it, some of that goes back to, I think, our earlier conversation about sort of the fundamental shift in thinking about priorities and funding. You know, I think planning and community engagement has to be a part of that program as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that's really interesting um, that has been really interesting for me in the housing conversations that that we've been having around fair housing is kind of recognizing that most of the people who have been in power are white and they come from a certain perspective. And so we're just we're coming to this conversation with a particular frame and a particular understanding that the way we've done things in the past and kind of the just the basis of these policies that we're trying to, you know, quote unquote, improve are might be flawed fundamentally for, for some communities. And we can't even get to that part of the conversation where it's like, but we fund like there's, there are a couple of folks kind of at this table that we've been part of that say, you know, yes, we we're happy to talk to our community about, you know, discrimination and segregation and integration, but we fundamentally disagree with some of the premises of this conversation, this notion that we should be able to, we should be focusing on giving people the opportunity to move out of their neighborhoods and move into opportunity areas. Like we don't even like that premise to begin with. Like we believe that the conversation should be focused on investing in the disinvested places. So part of it has also been, you know, how do we start to shift the, the frames of the people and, and shift the power from, you know, the people who are in power right now to the folks who have, have these lived experiences with a lack of affordable housing. Um, so that, that like further compounds the difficulty of the conversation, um, you know, even more. So then there's this part of it is also how do we get the people who are in power right now to start to think differently about, you know, the, the structures that exist in our cities in the first place, you know, start to interrogate, uh, you know, the kind of the white supremacist underpinnings of a lot of the policies that got us to this point in the first place, you know, we got to look at these, these really hard conversations. So yeah, it's like, we even, we need to talk about, you know, racism in a lot of these conversations too, which is also really difficult. And, um, and, and very complicated. So it's, it is, it's like a really, and I think that's why a lot of people, it's not even just the billion dollar problem. It's like the billion dollar problem with all these other kind of intersectional issues that we need to unpack. So that just makes it even more difficult. So Carolyn, how do you see the upcoming 
untokening conference participate in this this conversation and these kind of issues and unraveling all of these things that are layered and kind of packed onto each other and if you could give us a brief kind of plug for the conference as well that'd be fantastic yeah definitely um so the untokening is happening November 13th in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, it's happening right after the Facing Race Conference, which is a conference that happens every two years and is focused on, obviously, issues of, of racial justice. And one of the reasons we kind of came to the point where we really wanted to have a convening like this was because we wanted to take the conversations around mobility out of the context of kind of mobility conversations and really center it in a space that's focused on race as one of the central issues in how we talk about the issue. Um, and, and one of the reasons was that there's kind of, and, and I kind of experienced this too, being in the, in the national bike movement. And it's kind of, again, analogous to the, the fair housing conversations where kind of the, the, Community perspective is is valued, is sought, but it's still kind of an, an additive thing. Like we're gonna we're gonna try to add your ideas to our agenda, um, and our agenda is what it is. And this is our national agenda, and you know maybe we can tweak it a little bit to make it better for folks of color, as opposed to starting from a place of what are the priorities in your community as the center of the conversation without even thinking about what, what's the national agenda. Not that the national agenda is bad, not that, you know, the other things that are happening aren't positive, but let's not, let's not start from that place. Let's start from a blank slate. That's, that's really based on the lived experiences of the people in our community. So that's kind of where we wanted to start with the untokening is not, you know, relying on, you know, experts or people who have, you know, quote unquote, best practices, but starting from what's really resonant for you doing this work in your community. Um, And so, and and it was also kind of a very intentional effort to center intersectionality. So um, one of the things that I think kind of preceded this or was, you know, an impetus for this was a lot of us are engaged in a personal or in a professional way around um, the movement for black lives and really understanding that, you know, how you move through public space on our streets is strongly influenced by, you know, who you are and what you embody and that black bodies are fundamentally more unsafe in our streets because of, you know, these other social factors like policing. Um, and so those kinds of conversations, I think a lot of us were having difficulty having in a productive way within kind of the the general kind of established parameters of what is bike advocacy. And so I think this is a space to start to grapple with how do we start to do that, not just in our communities, but how do we bring that to kind of these the local advocacy organizations that are grappling with this. Um, obviously we are here in Minneapolis. Um, and then how do we kind of bring that up to the national level in a way that's authentic to the way we want to talk about it, as opposed to how we can kind of possibly finagle a little in with, um, kind of the conversations that, that are, uh, considered relevant for a lot of folks, um, at the national level. And I think that's a, that's a huge, difficult conversation as well. And I think a lot of it comes also from, 
people's personal experiences. Like here in Minneapolis, obviously, you know, Philando Castile was killed a number of months ago. And it's, it's very apparent in, you know, how I've existed in public spaces around, you know, protests and, and having an opinion about these issues is there's a very different way white people are treated than black people. And so I think that it's, it's starting to make that the center of the conversation and as opposed to trying to figure out how we're going to bring that conversation to folks who are um, still kind of wary of, of what are those intersections and is it right for the bike movement to be thinking about these, these types of things? Um, Sorry, that was a super long-winded answer um, about the the untokening. But um, yeah, and the other thing that we're doing is that we're really trying to prioritize having a space that's predominantly folks of color. You know, for the mm-hmm. most part, the there's you have very different conversations about these issues issues that you know have a lot to do with race. When you know there's that the majority of the people in the room are white and. Um, I think trying to create spaces intentionally that prioritize people of color is something that hasn't really been done um, in the way that we're we're trying to do it at the end tokening. So I think that'll also kind of in and of itself facilitate a different type of a conversation. Um, and yeah. I don't even remember what your question specifically was, so I just rambled. You answered it. You answered it beautifully. I don't remember what it was either, but that was fantastic. Can people still register for the conference, Carolyn? Yes, they definitely can. Um, And, well, the podcast probably won't um, be available by then, but um, early registration ends on October 21st, but you can register up until... Um, pretty much the day before the conference. We do have a capacity of 150 people, and we're about halfway there, a little over halfway there at this point. So, um, yeah, folks are interested, go to untokening.org, and all the information is there. And Are there going to be ways for people who can't make it to get in on the action or, or see the results of some of the conversations that happened? Yes, absolutely. So first of all, we do have an IOB campaign um, because we're trying to give away as many scholarships as we can um, because obviously a lot of folks who are doing this work uh, aren't compensated for their work as bike advocates. So we want to make sure that the financial barriers or finances aren't a barrier to folks. Um, So if you search IOB and untokening, I'm sure it'll take you to our our IOB campaign. Um, That's a great way to help out. Also, um, we do have a Twitter handle on tokening, um, on Twitter, and we'll be sharing obviously some thoughts in real time during the event, but we're also going to be putting together a number of, um, statements or, um, kind of, yeah, kind of like position statements in specific areas like displacement, like street safety, as it relates to kind of policing and, um, the way we exist in our public spaces afterwards and we'll be sharing those position statements quite widely um, in the hopes to kind of get folks thinking differently in these areas so there'll be certainly some outcomes after that will be available for kind of public consumption and, and people to learn from as well and then we're also using the space itself to kind of figure out what are the next steps like do we do this every year do we 
um, do it every two years? You know, what is what does this conversation look like in a more sustained way? And that we haven't really, you know, we're going to wait and see kind of what happens in that room to figure out what those next steps should be. Awesome. Uh, Carolyn, I'm going to uh, prepare a full list of questions, uh, and I hope that you'll come back with us on, a, on, another, yeah. on another episode. Because uh, I, I had this, again, I had this rabbit hole, right? And, and I think we yeah. should go down it a, a, a bit deeper if we can. But thank you so much for taking time out of your Monday night to join us. Uh, and uh, the episode will be up soon. So hopefully people will get in on the registration before it ends. Perfect. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you guys taking the time to talk to me. Absolutely. Well, well have a good night then. You Thanks. too. Enjoy. <laughs> okay. Bye. The Bike Nerds Podcast is a joint production of the Bike Nerds, Sarah, and Kyle, and the OEM Network based in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit theoemnetwork.com slash thebikenerds. Want to nerd out more? Find us on the web at thebikenerdspodcast.com, on Twitter at thebikenerds, and on Facebook, The Bike Nerds Podcast. Drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at thebikenerdspodcast at gmail.com. 